21 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It may seem odd at the end of a week of such extraordinary violence and chaos and continuing climaxing drama to step back 2,500 years, but it actually isn't. And as part of the Hillsdale Dialogues, I'm quite certain that my guest, Dr. Paul Ray, who is the Charles O. Lee and Louise K. Lee Chair in Western Heritage and a professor of history at Hillsdale, will explain that to us. Uh, Professor Ray, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and the first time on the Hillsdale Dialogue series with me. Ah, okay, good, good. It's a pleasure to be there, to be here. I read your essays on Thucydides uh, to get ready for this, and I've been talking with Larry Arn about it, but do you find it odd to talk after the week of such extraordinary violence about the destruction of the uh, of the island people of Malian? No, I mean it's look Thucydides' book is a kind of extended meditation on the relationship between the human and violence. Uh, and uh, you know, I gather that you spoke with Doctor Arne uh, about the uh, revolution at Corsaira. Yes. Uh, you know, one of the themes of that is war is a violent teacher. It's a, um, um, uh, a teacher of violence. Uh, and that war between political communities often can lead to war inside political communities. So one of the things that he's, that he's tracing in the book is, is the manner in which a war that goes on for 27 years erodes relations inside communities. So you end up with a revolution like the one at Corsaira, and of course, that's a portent of a revolution that will eventually come to Athens itself. Now, let's set up for the benefit of those who did not hear the first uh, couple of weeks that I spent on the Peloponnesian Wars with Dr. Arne. We are at the midway point in the book at this point, and the Melian Dialogue, as you write in your essay, is really the centerpiece of the whole history. Yeah. Uh, explain to people the, sort of the setting before we dive into what the Athenians actually say and what it tells any great superpower to be aware of. Well, it, it, the setting is uh, a great power going after a really minuscule power, uh, the island of Milos in, in the Aegean, which is an island uh, of Dorians, uh, and, and, and it was apparently uh, very early in Greek history a colony from Sparta. Uh, it's not been involved in the war. Uh, it's, it's stayed out of it. It's been neutral. And the Athenians send a force to take it. Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, it's at a time when they're actually uh, technically at peace with Sparta. It's more like a truce than a peace. And they're sort of cleaning up. Uh, they're looking around and they're thinking, what can we do? Uh, and the Milos is governed by an oligarchy. And so they don't want the Athenians to speak to the assembly at Milos, they want to have a private discussion between the leaders of the oligarchy and the leaders of Athens. And there ends up being a discussion that is franker than one that would take place uh, in front of the people. Uh, and the Athenians, who have the advantage militarily, uh, are pressing the question of advantage. Uh, and what they're saying to the Melians is, you need to give in. If you do give in, we will allow you to live. If you make trouble for us, uh, we'll kill all of you, which is what they end up doing. So Would you say that they are practicing terrorism? 
Well, they're certainly using terror uh, in war as um, a, a force for um, uh, causing other peoples to uh, toe the line. Now, look, in some sense, in wartime, uh, terror is a force. Uh, how do you get people to, to um, surrender unless you scare them? So it isn't quite what we would call terrorism. See, what we would call terrorism is, is, is a, a kind of secretive attack uh, aimed not at military forces, but aimed at civilians. Now, in a sense, the Athenians are aiming at civilians on Milos. On the other hand, the civilians they're aiming at are also soldiers, since all of the men, and they're the ones they're going to kill, are in fact soldiers. And they do kill every man. They sell the women and children into slavery. They utterly destroy the island. And and what I was thinking about when I was reading your essay is that uh, you made the point, the oligarchy, the, the, the folks who are punished here have no participation in the decision-making. None. That's exactly right. And there's an earlier occasion in which the Athenians confront a rebellion on the island of Mytilene, uh, a rebellion uh, from within their empire of a... Um, of a city that had been allied to Athens for a long time. That is also carried out by an oligarchy. And there's a debate about whether they should, when they capture it, whether they should kill everybody. And an Athenian named Diodotus, whose name means given by God, persuades the Athenians not to do that. And his appeal is twofold. On the one hand, he says, um, uh, the people are on your side, or you'll make them be on your side if you drive a wedge between the oligarchic leadership that led them into this disaster and the people. And on the other hand, he intimates it's unjust to kill the people. And early in the war, the Athenians have the um, measuredness not to make the decision to kill all the Mytileneans. You know, but that's um, maybe 10 years before this, uh, 12 years before. So t the, 10 years into war and the Athenians have lost their, uh, not their civil civilization or civility, but they've lost, uh, what, their patience with, with... Yeah, they've lost their patience. They've also lost their sense of decency. They've been worn down by the miseries of war. And now they're doing things that... Um, well, in Thucydides, when he talks about the decision not to execute all the Mytileneans, he says, upon reflection, having slept on it for one night, they wake up the next morning and they think, that would be monstrous. Okay, what they do to the Melians is monstrous. Uh, and so in cold blood, uh, in, in, in the later period, in, say, 416, they do to the Melians what in anger at their allies, they were unwilling to do in, say, 427. Now, in this famous uh, dialogue that we're talking about, uh, there is the famous, famous line, the strong do as they can and the weak suffer what they must. And that is sort of the summation of what the Athenians say here. We have a minute to the break, Dr. Ray. Uh, do you think that the Americans, as sort of heir to the Athenian tradition, are finding their way to that same kind of conclusion? Not yet. No, I don't think so. Um, I think we do understand uh, that the strong have a lot more uh, weight than the weak. But there's a kind of brutality 
to that statement uh, that is really quite shocking. There is. When we come back from break, after... I just don't know how long America will put up with weeks like this if it actually continued and and what they would do in response to it because it's a traumatic week. And I'll talk with Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College. Uh, In our Hillsdale Dialogues, it just so happens we're talking about the brutality in response to long war uh, that follows in a democracy. Here we are. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the Our American Hugh Hewitt. Uh, even in this week, I always conclude this hour with the Hillsdale Dialogues, usually with Dr. Larry Arnor, another member of the Distinguished Hillsdale faculty this week. So pleased to have Dr. Paul Ray back with me. Uh, doctor, in terms of what I was saying during the break, uh, when you discuss the Malian Dialogue in your essays that I read about it, you, you pay a lot of attention to the fact the Athenians are 10 years into a war, 12 years into a war. And they've become rather ruthless. They exterminate an entire population. They're, in essence, going Roman before the Romans ever went Roman. And I was just raising the question of whether or not you see that same tendency developing in America. There's also a second tendency. Not long after this, they sail off to Sicily in their disastrous overreach. Uh, in fact, yeah. you, you point out it's the transition point, the overreach transition. So they lose their grace or their graciousness, and then they go off on a for an adventure that destroys them. Right. They lose, they lose a kind of um, balance, of measure, uh, of caution, and of decency. Uh, they're, they're, you know, the, 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 killing all the Melians. The Melians had never done anything against the Athenians. So there, there's, there's simply, there's no grounds for anger. There was grounds for anger against the Midlineans, but the Athenians managed to restrain it uh, by sleeping on it, as we often do when we're angry, and waking up the next morning no longer being angry and thinking, gosh, now they're simply cold-blooded. Now, you know, if you're looking for another comparison, the Spartans are cold-blooded from the beginning. Uh, We're told by Thucydides that uh, when they capture neutral ships, they kill everybody. Uh, and and when the Plataeans, who've never done anything against the Spartans, uh, eventually uh, early in the war uh, they they're starved out. The Thebans want their territory and their land, and the Spartans put on a kind of trial of the Theban of of the Plataeans, and they don't listen to a word that they have to say. They kill them all. But the Spartans, because they've got helots are kind of brutal people. They're slaves. Helots being slaves. I want to make sure the audience who just yeah. tuned in. They're, they're just, uh, they're, they're slave troops. Yeah, they're, well, they're, they, they, they operate in a slave system in, in which they're outnumbered by the slave population they rule over by seven to one. And so when it comes to making decisions, they think only about their interests. There's not a generosity of spirit to the Spartans. They're brave. They're very good to one another. They're loyal to one another. But when it comes to foreign people, um, they, they really do not give them a thought, except with regard to their utility. The Athenians claim to be better, and they in fact are better. But in the course of the war, they lose that capacity. So what happens to them? Uh, the violence of war puts them into something like the state of nature. 
Uh, Thomas Hobbes was the first translator into English of Thucydides. And, you know, if you want to understand Hobbes, read Book 3, Paragraphs 82 and 83 on the Corsairean Revolution, as translated by Hobbes, a better translation than any other of that passage anyway. And then look at his Leviathan. Uh, and in the world in, of, of, of the state of nature, Hobbes tells us in Chapter 13 of Leviathan, force and fraud are the cardinal virtues. The virtues, by the way, that are identified by Machiavelli. You know, what, what a gangster in the 1930s would have called moxie. That's what virtue really is. By the time of the Melian Dialogue, the Athenians are thinking like people in the state of nature. They have lost their capacity to, they've lost their balance. Does that happen to any people long engaged in brutal war? I think so. Uh, it depends on how long, and obviously it depends on how brutal. Look, we in the United States are relatively sheltered from war. Uh, most of us never see the battlefield. You know, during uh, the, the long, cold war, uh, we were involved in a great struggle, but very few Americans actually found themselves on the battlefield, whereas ancient warfare involved almost every citizen. Uh, in risking his life on the battlefield, and in killing. Uh, and the long-term effect of that is to erode that sort of sense of decency and restraint uh, that, that ordinarily holds people in check. When I come back with Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale, we'll continue this week's Hillsdale Dialogue, the fourth in our series on the Thucydides, uh, the Peloponnesian War. Uh, talking about the middle point of the book, the Melian Dialogue. But when I come back, I'm going to ask him about what he thinks is going on in the United States, even as we conclude another week of atrocity and violence. And boy, if you look at Twitter, if, and if you go to some of the far reaches of the Internet, there are a lot of people who are going for the Athenian option right now. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Paul Ray. This week's Hillsdale Dialogue with one of the great professors of Western civilization at wonderful Hillsdale College. And Dr. Ray, I don't want to push too hard on an analogy simply because the news of the week is pushing us there. But I am curious if you do sit back and talk with your students and wonder about, and I know you write frequently uh, in the public intellectual world as well, about what uh, 12 years of war has done to the United States and what, you know, 12 hours of gun battles in the streets of Boston and explosives and I've I've been talking to experts all day about the Chechnyan civil war. It's it's not traumatic, but it's impactful to a country. Yes, yes, and and look, I I think on Boston in particular, this is going to have a huge impact. Uh, how not? I mean, everybody's locked down right now. This is a day no one in Boston's ever going to forget, and I suspect the day of the Boston Marathon is a day that no one in Boston is is ever going to forget. In the rest of the country, you know, we watch from a great distance as spectators. And yes, you're right. If you look at Twitter, there's a great deal of anger being expressed. That's not very surprising and not very shocking. But, you know, this, it, it tends to pass fairly quickly because it doesn't touch most of us the way it touches, say, the families of the people who were murdered or the families of people who lost legs, or the people of Boston who, uh, in some sense or other, witnessed this. 
because they were very close to it and and were deeply touched by it. Uh, you know, the the um, think think of the blowing up of the federal building in Oklahoma City uh, back in the 1990s. I, I remember it well because I was teaching at the University of Tulsa at the time, and I remember being called by uh, the television station to comment on it. Uh, and of course, you know, they wanted me to say who done it, and they were pressing me to say that the Arabs had done it, and uh, I I was holding back because uh, it. it it didn't seem very likely to me, and you know it's a mistake to shoot your mouth off in circumstances like that. Um, you need to hold back and wait and see what you've learned about it. But what strikes me is, yes, we remember that, but we're not moved by it in to great anger today. Well, the other thing that strikes me that's very different is in your essays on the Melian Dialogues, immediately after the destruction of the island and the enslavement of the people who were taken captain in the massacre of the men, the, Sicil- the, the Sicily expedition, Athens just goes further and further. We're withdrawing from the world, aren't we? We're doing the opposite. Yes, I'm not sure that we can withdraw from the world. You know, it, it, uh, it, Godfather number three says, every time I, I try to get out, they drag me back in. I think you're the only person at Hillsdale who's seen Godfather Part Three. That's, <laughs> that, that, that may be. I insist that my students see Godfather Part One because it, it tells you how Rome operates. Yeah, that, you know, that's patronage true. Patronage and clientship and so forth. That's true. But Rome. But number three. Gosh, that's an awful movie. So in any event, yeah. every time we. So we. You're saying we may yet have a Sicilian expedition in us. Well, you know, people were comparing the first, the second Iraq War to the Sicilian expedition. Now, I, I don't think the comparison was ever apt because our capacity to project power over great distances is very considerable. And you know, the Athenians were sending a vast number of ships and men uh, off where they really couldn't adequately be supported. But who knows? What I would say is this. In the larger world, simply because of our footprint, our economic footprint, if nothing else, but also the historical role that we played in the 20th century, we can't escape that. There's not going to be a new isolationism. We may try it for a couple of years, and then we'll be punished for it the way we were punished the last time we tried isolationism. Uh, and it may happen under a Democrat, and it may happen under a Republican. Uh, uh, but I don't think we can actually pull out of the world. And I, what's happened in in Boston is an indication of that. You try to pull out of the world, they come to you. Yep, that that's absolutely and truly well said. Can we conclude this segment, though? Uh, something you pointed out, the middle of a book is the place of honor, and that's where the Melian Dialogue is put into uh, Thucydides' history. Would you explain to people what you mean by that? Because that may be a novel concept to some folks. Well, it's you know if you go through ancient literature uh, and, and and you know if you even consider a throne, the highest throne is always the one in the middle. And if you go through uh, the plays of Aeschylus, the plays of Sophocles, the plays of Euripides, the turning point is always in the middle. Um, so it's it's a kind of hinge on which the whole thing turns. And Thucydides did not leave, live to finish his account of the war. Uh, book eight sort of ends suddenly. And it's clear that he would have gone on to do a book nine and a book ten. Uh, and he would have ended the war, and then Athens would have been in exactly the position Milos was in. Uh, defeated 
and with some people wanting to kill all of the Athenians. So the very questions that the Melians raise in the Melian Dialogue, which is to say, what if you're in our position someday, uh, is raised. And the Athenian prediction in the Melian Dialogue is the Spartans won't kill them. The Spartans will consult their interests and keep the Athenians alive, because it will be in the interest of Sparta to keep the Athenians alive, which is exactly what happens. So by consulting rational self-interest, you can get to the right answer if you simply push the question hard enough. You, yes. Let's put it this way. Uh, it was not in the interest of the Athenians to kill the Melians. It was not in the interest of the Athenians to go to Sicily. Um, restraint um, uh, is, is in one's interest. Uh, it, it, and, and, you know, ordinary moral sentiments also come into play when there is restraint. You sort of pause and think, that's not just. That's not right. But the Athenians, in the course of the war, lost that restraint. Um, they came to be in the grips of what Pericles wanted to put them in the grips of, which is a kind of eros for glory, a kind of longing and lust for the beautiful. Uh, understood as their empire and their conquests and their victories on the battlefield. In the process, they lost the capacity to calculate about their interests effectively. Oh, a good a good word for restraint and a great place to end this Hillsdale Dialogue. Uh, Dr. Paul Ray, thank you for uh, uh, doing so, so well this week. Uh, I'll be back next week with the next Hillsdale Dialogue America. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. 